May the Lord bless today his word as it is read and as it is likewise preached to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along as I read from our text this Lord's Day, I invite you to turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles 34, and I'll be reading verses 29 through 20, 29 through 33. <clears throat> then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed, not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers." When a national covenant made with God has been grievously broken by a nation, does that bring to an end all duty and obligation to that national covenant? If the magistrates prove to be covenant breakers themselves and even outlaw that lawful national covenant, does that annul all duty and obligation to that national covenant? If all of the people within the nation, after hundreds of years, should forget that such a national covenant was made in the first place, can that national covenant be set aside as having no legal or moral standing? We have concluded from past sermons that there is a perpetual obligation to all posterity that attaches itself to a lawful national covenant made with God. No matter what degrees of lawlessness performed by the nation, the church, the magistrates, or posterity, God will not forget the obligations sworn to him in either personal vows or national covenants. So what is to be done by those within a nation or by those who are the posterity when they mournfully realize their covenant breaking? When they come to grips with the fact that they have violated this sacred and solemn national covenant with God. Well, they should mourn and repent of their sin against the God they have offended and against their fellow men. They should seek by faith alone the forgiveness of God through the only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through his perfect righteousness alone. They should own for themselves the perpetual obligation of such national covenants. They should seek to renew 
a lawful national covenant made with God. Dear ones, a covenant renewal demonstrates that the obligation of the original covenant yet binds the original covenanters, if they are still living, and likewise binds all posterity that follows. Otherwise, what's the purpose of renewing that original covenant? It is only because the intrinsic obligation of a covenant continues to bind posterity that posterity would renew a covenant to uphold that obligation, even if that obligation has been renounced and, quote-unquote, annulled by magistrates or ignored and forgotten by posterity. Thus, the renovation or renewal of a lawful national covenant, dear ones, supports the perpetual obligation of all such covenants to all posterity. Let us consider today some questions related to the renewal or renovation of lawful national covenants. The first main point that I would have us consider is the scriptural warrant for covenant renewal. The scriptural warrant for covenant renewal. And this takes us back to our text, which was read at the beginning of the, the chapter here. And let me simply read for you out of uh, the verses I read. Let me simply focus my attention upon verses 31 and 32, where it says, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Well, here is a text we find, and in this particular text, we find a particular occasion of renewal of a national covenant with God. The circumstances leading to this covenant renovation were marvelous indeed. Let's just recount them very briefly. While the temple was being purged and cleansed of all the idolatrous innovations that uh, had been left in it at the time that young King Josiah became king, Hilkiah the high priest, purging the, the, uh, the temple, found either the original covenant written by the actual hand of Moses, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26, it speaks there of Moses actually, or, uh, actually writing uh, all the words of the covenant with his own hand and, and giving it to the priests to preserve. And so, uh, it may have been what Hilkiah the high priest found was that actual original document that Moses recorded, that original covenant. Or it may have been a faithful copy of that original document written by Moses. I, either one. We're not absolutely sure since it doesn't tell us in the text what it was, but it may have been either one. Well, does this mean that there was no copy of God's original covenant available to Josiah at, at all, at least until this one was found by Hilkiah in the temple? Or does this mean that there was no faithful copy of the original co uh, covenant that God had made with his people that was available to them until this document was found in the temple by Hilkiah the high priest? Well, we again, we don't know for sure, 
But I will submit to you the following response to, to that question. If the original covenant written by Moses hadn't been, had been hidden in the temple by the faithful, by those who are faithful, in order to preserve it from those in the kingdom who despised it, and subsequently it was lost for a time, a brief period of time. And if wicked magistrates or idolatrous priests had likewise destroyed all the known copies of God's covenant with Israel, then we would have some reasonable explanation why Josiah seemed so overwhelmed with a godly fear upon finding this or hearing the words of this document read to him, as we see was the case in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 19 through 21. Notice what we read there. Second Chronicles 34, beginning with verse 19. Now this is what this was the reaction of Josiah when he heard the reading of God's covenant. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king's, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is, a, that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. Kind of a strange, a strange reaction if there were copies available of the covenant. Furthermore, when Hilkiah, even before the words that I just read earlier in the chapter, when Hilkiah finds the book, it's again with great surprise, he says, I have found the book. I have found the book of God's law. And, and again, we would say, you know, why that kind of reaction if, if again, there were faithful copies if either the original was still preserved, or if there are faithful copies, why such a reaction, uh, you know, of that nature? I, I do think, <clears throat> uh, without that explanation that I've just suggested, it's hard to explain why Hilkiah re responded with such surprise and why Josiah responded with such mournful surprise upon hearing the covenant and law read to him. However, if Josiah had a general knowledge of God's law passed down to him by word of mouth through godly tutors, uh, prophets, and priests, he would have acquired sufficient knowledge to begin to enact reformation as he did in fact do prior to the finding of this covenant, a Hilkiah finding this. He had already begun to enact reformation in Judah and within the temple. And in fact, the purging of the temple was the occasion for which he did find the book that he was going through the temple which the king had ordered. And so that would tend to indicate again that, uh, uh, that Josiah had sufficient knowledge in a general way as to the, the law of God and what God required but it would seem as though what he did not have was the, an actual either original or a faithful copy, which when it was read to him, he, he tore his clothing in, in mournful grief and surprise over the wrath of God that laid upon Israel for having broken God's covenant. And on this point of Josiah's Reformation, it's, worthy to note that these verses uh, that speak of the Reformation which he enacted prior to finding the book of the law, the book of the covenant, in Second Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 13, they do not record anything to the effect that the Reformation was accomplished according to the commandments of God as, as recorded in the law given by Moses, or something to that effect. But we do see that type of language used 
on other occasions where there was reformation brought about, which would tend to indicate, at least it would seem plausible, that if they refer to, you know, reformation that is that is being enacted within Judah, and they say, as was uh, spoken or written in the law of Moses, or as is recorded in God's law given to Moses, those types of uh, references would tend to indicate that perhaps they had a faithful copy of God's covenant and God's law. But I would, again, submit the the possibility and perhaps even the likelihood at this point that that was not available to um, Josiah. When did... When did, when did the, 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 either the faithful copy or the original, what happened to it? Where, when did it become destroyed? Well, remember, his grandfather Manasseh was, in the former part of his reign, was a very wicked. There wasn't really within Judah one more wicked than him by way of uh, seeking to overturn any kind of reformation within uh, God's Reformation. He, he sought to overturn Reformation at every point to uh, take out you know, uh, various uh, pieces of furniture out of the, the temple, to pollute the temple, to bring in uh, false gods and images into the temple of God. He did everything he could. Subsequently, when he was led, as we have noted before, he was led into captivity and there he repented uh, of his sin and his wickedness uh, was restored to God uh, and was returned back to the throne and brought about you know, reformation. But perhaps in his reign, those faithful copies, since uh, he was so dead set against uh, 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 God's word and God's truth, perhaps they were lost at that point. Or in uh, Josiah's father, Perhaps, again, uh, his father Ammon, uh, the son of Manasseh, again, a very wicked uh, king uh, in Judah. Perhaps it was during that time um, that either the original or a faithful copy was lost. I, I don't believe it was likely for hundreds of years that they didn't have uh, a faithful copy or the original but more likely for a relatively short period of time, and, um, and therefore there was still sufficient knowledge as to purging of the temple and general knowledge as to what needed to be done by his tutors, prophets, priests, who spoke to him concerning these things. And I would just uh, mention, by way of application, how many servants of Satan have sought to destroy the scripture? throughout time and history. How many different ways have uh, detractors, skeptics, sought to undermine the authority of Scripture by way of higher critical uh, uh, premises and arguments uh, to put the Scripture on par with just any other piece of, of literature, not acknowledging that it is indeed the infallible, inspired word of God and it is not to be tampered with. It is and does have even a curse attached to the tampering of it in Revelation. At the end of the last chapter of Revelation, those who add to or take away from it. And so... What a blessing, dear ones, is ours as we consider how many... Uh, adversaries, enemies have sought to destroy the word of God, the scripture, as in the case of Josiah, it was missing. They had sought to destroy it, apparently. The faithful had taken the scripture and hidden it at, to preserve it, to protect it, and it was subsequently found as they were going about doing the work of reformation, as they were doing God's work, so God revealed to him where the word of God was. And so as we go about doing what the scripture commands us to do, it is in the way of doing what God calls us to do that he makes more clear and plain to us his will. In thy light we shall see light, the scripture tells us. But what a blessing, dear ones, that we have, faith, we have a faithful version 
of the Scripture translated into our own language. And yet how, dear ones, we need to have that astonishment of Hilkiah that we have God's Word. I have found it. I have found the covenant of God. I have found the Word of God. We ought to have that same holy astonishment and surprise that God would show us that this is His holy Word, that our eyes have been opened, that He has preserved His Word. And so, dear ones, is your Bible, and you know, we all have more than one copy in our, in our homes. Perhaps each member of the family has his or her own copy of the Holy Scriptures. What a blessing. But is it daily read with love and fear and faith and lived out in our lives? Having simply a copy of the Scriptures almost becomes to us a point of judgment. If in fact it is not read daily with love and fear and faith and lived out in our practice and in our lives. It's a reason for condemning us rather than saving us. And if that's how we view the Scripture, it becomes merely an idol to us. If the fact that we can just say, I must be saved, I have a Bible. I, have, I read it. But if it's not read, as I said, with love and fear and faith and lived out in our lives, it's simply an idol to us. That's all it is. It is no wonder, dear ones, that the Scripture is not practiced by us if we do not see the infinite value of it and stand in awe and wonder and astonishment before God that He would preserve it throughout hundreds of years. He would preserve His Word and then give it to such undeserving sinners like us. If that doesn't amaze you and astonish you, dear ones, you've lost sight of what you hold in your hands and what you read in secret worship and family worship and what you hear preached to you on the Lord's Day. Now, upon hearing the reading of God's original covenant with the nation of Israel and having mourned over the aggravated sin of covenant breaking with God, Josiah takes the next step to renew that original covenant with God. Notice again the connection here. In verse 31, and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. So that's one covenant he made before the Lord. And the substance of that covenant is this, to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant. That's the original covenant. So this is a covenant renovation of that original covenant. And it says, so, uh, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. <clears throat> and so, Josiah gathers together the leaders of both the church and state as well as the people in Jerusalem. And then the king proceeds to read God's covenant to them. And then he covenants with God, as we just noted, to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. Second Chronicles 34:31. And then King Josiah caused all the people to take the same covenant renewal as well. He used his royal authority to enforce the taking of this covenant as well. You see, there was using the authority of God entrusted to him as the minister of God to the people for good, for their good. He used his royal power and authority to bring them to that place where they would take this, this holy covenant, this righteous covenant. Now, in doing so, this did not, this covenant renewal did not impose some new obligation upon Josiah and the people that was not already imposed upon them by virtue of the original national covenant made at Mount Sinai. 
This covenant renewal was rather intended to deepen and make the original covenant duties more sensible and lasting upon the consciences of both king and people. Dear ones, when you have broken a lawful promise to someone, is it not ordinarily just and right to repent of breaking that promise? <clears throat> Seeking forgiveness for having broken that promise and to own that promise anew as one should, as you should have kept it originally in the first place. Owning it anew. If that is, dear ones, not our response to, to covenant breaking, when we break promises, when we break oaths, when we break covenants, then I would submit to you that no covenant, no contract, no promise, no oath, and no vow will be sacred to us at all. If we do not believe that the original covenant that we broke should be owned afresh and anew by way of repentance and forgiveness. We, dear ones, if that's the case, we will go on our merry way breaking covenant and making excuses why we are justified in doing so and eventually forgetting that a covenant was ever made in the first place. And each time this happens, it will be easier to do it the next time and correspondingly harder to repent of and to renew the next time as well. The renovation of the National Covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, with Moses at Mount Sinai, Sinai there in Horeb, occurs on several occasions. The covenant renovation of that original covenant occurs on several occasions in recorded biblical history. For example, as we and we've looked at many of these covenant renewals of the original covenant, but just again so that we're seeing how often the covenant was renewed. It was renewed with Moses in Moab in Deuteronomy 29, 1-15. It was renewed with Joshua in Joshua 24, 25. It was renewed with King Asa in 2 Chronicles 15, 12. It was renewed with Jehoiada the high priest and Joash the king in 2 Chronicles 23, 16. It was renewed with Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29.10. It was renewed with Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34.31. It was renewed with Ezra in Ezra 10.3. And finally, it was renewed with Nehemiah in 9.38. If it is a duty for a nation to covenant with God that he would be their God and they would be his people. And we have already in the past, in past sermons, demonstrated the duty that rests upon a nation to do that. If it is a duty for a nation to covenant with God, even Gentile nations, as we've noted, not only Israel, then I submit it is likewise a duty for a nation to own anew the covenant with God when it has been seriously violated. The same moral principle we ought to use in all other covenants in which we have become covenant breakers if we're truly repentant for our covenant breaking. This is, as I said, it's simply the same moral principle that you ought to use if you break covenant or promise with one who's an individual, with another person. Or... Uh, Break covenant with your family or break covenant with your church or break covenant with your, your nation. It's the same process. We ought to repent, seek God's forgiveness, and then personally renew our covenant that we have broken. The second main point is this. <clears throat> some objections that arise in the matter of covenant renewal. And so we want to look at a few objections as we, as we consider the rest of the sermon today. Some objections that arise in the matter of covenant renewal. 
First of all, this one. Since the national covenant is distinctive to Israel, so likewise is the renewal to a national covenant. All the examples of covenant renewal cited from the scripture relate to Israel alone, rather than to Gentile nations. Thus, it has not been shown from scripture that covenant renewal relates to any other nation than Israel. First objection. Well, it is true that all of the examples of covenant renewal that were cited earlier from the scripture specifically speak of Israel. However, this objection proceeds from a false premise. Namely, that national covenanting is itself distinctive to Israel. Therefore, the conclusion would naturally follow if national covenanting is distinctive to Israel, it would naturally follow that renewing a national covenant is likewise distinctive to Israel. However, if it can be demonstrated from Scripture that national covenanting is not distinctive to Israel, then it can likewise be shown by parity or equality of reason that renewing a national covenant is not distinctive to Israel, even if all the examples that we actually have of covenant renewal are on the part of Israel. For a lawful promise that is broken is a sin called covenant breaking in Romans 131. And it should be repented of, as we've already noted. Forgiveness should be sought. And that covenant should be owned anew to be a lawful promise that one endeavors to keep by God's grace. Otherwise, one continues to be a covenant breaker. Now, we've already noted in a previous sermon, these two national covenants that I'm going to mention, two national covenants that involve Gentile nations. And again, if these particular scriptural references demonstrate that Gentile nations ought to covenant nationally with God and that God considers those covenants to be binding so that he owns them as his people and they become his God, then if it be broken, that national covenant be broken by a Gentile nation, then likewise it should be renewed by that same Gentile nation. In Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25, again, this is a passage we have considered before, but in this passage, very Clearly, we find the nation of Egypt covenanting directly with God, a Gentile nation covenanting with God, when it says, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. And then, likewise, when we uh, look at verse 21, Isaiah 19:21, and we read, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And so here, I think we can safely assume that there has not been a national covenant on the part of Egypt swearing to be God's people. The, the effect of this particular covenant that is made, this national covenant by Egypt, is that God owns them as his people. In verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. My people. The same language that's spoken of with regard to Israel when they became God's covenant people. God says, you know, as a result of the national covenant, you are my people and I am your God. So God, when Egypt 
swears and covenants nationally with God, God owns them as his people in this particular case. I think that this is a very uh, clear uh, passage of scripture which demonstrates a nation, a Gentile nation, covenanting with God. Now, if in fact they can covenant with God, what would prevent them from renewing a covenant if it were broken? Nothing. And so by parity or equality of reason, we can see what is true of Israel as a nation who covenants with God, and when it's broken, they renew it, so likewise with any nation that covenants with God and breaks it, so likewise they should renew it. And the second uh, passage of Scripture is Amos 1.9, which again we have considered before. And in Amos 1.9, we see there that the city-state of Tyre swore a brotherly covenant of peace with Israel. And that covenant is is referred to in 1 Kings 5.12 between the heads of state, Solomon and Hiram. And Tyre, a Gentile nation, broke it. And as a result of having broken it, God's judgment in Amos 1, 9, and 10 rests upon the city-state of Tyre. Uh, And this occurred hundreds of years after. This judgment is hundreds of years after the national covenant was made between Tyre and uh, Israel. And yet, it continues to bind. It continues to have that perpetual obligation. And if that national covenant was a valid covenant for which God does judge them, which obviously is the case, what should they have done? What should Tyre have done recognizing that they had broken a national covenant, even if it was not sworn directly to God, but yet was made with another nation, a brotherly covenant of peace? What should they do but to renew that covenant? But to renew that covenant. That was their moral obligation. To repent, to seek God's forgiveness, and to renew it. A similar objection... The second uh, objection now. But a similar one follows the one just mentioned. Namely, that since a lawful national covenant that perpetually binds posterity can only be one that is initiated by God with the nation and not by the nation with God, no lawful renewal of a national covenant can occur where God did not initiate the original national covenant as, for example, the national covenant initiated by God with Israel at Mount Sinai. You see the argument. It's not, a nation cannot covenant with God unless God initiates the covenant, is the first of this particular objection. That's the the premise. Therefore, because uh, uh, that only is true, that is only true of the covenant established with Israel, at Mount Sinai, then it is only Israel, it leads to the same conclusion as the previous objection, then it is only Israel that was able to uh, have a national covenant, and it's only Israel that therefore that can renew it, because only in that covenant does God initiate it, as opposed to the other method where the nation initiates it with God. Again, I must say that this objection proceeds from a false premise thus making the conclusion false as well. For it is not true that a lawful national covenant that perpetually binds posterity can only be initiated by God and not be initiated by a nation. And therefore, it is also not true that a lawful national covenant that perpetually binds posterity can only be renewed if God initiated that original covenant. And again, we consider the same two examples from the scripture that I just mentioned above. In Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25, that will be fresh in your mind, hopefully, it is clearly the nation of Egypt that initiates the national covenant with God, and yet the general moral principle will surely be acknowledged by parity or equality of reason, that if Israel, as God's people, breaks covenant with God, she should renew it, 
that likewise, if Egypt is God's people, who are called God's people in Isaiah 19.25, if they should break the covenant that they initiate with God, they should likewise renew it as well. And in Amos 1.9, which we looked at just uh, previously, if Israel should break her national covenant of peace with Tyre, should Israel repent? Should Israel um, seek God's forgiveness? Should Israel renew the covenant? Of course. Of course she should. Well, what if Tyre? What if Tyre breaks that brotherly covenant of peace as actually was the case? Should she repent and seek God's forgiveness and repent uh, and renew it? Again, of course. There's no moral reason why she shouldn't do, in that case, what Israel is obligated to do. Dear ones, a lot of these objections you'll see are simply objections that are raised in order to avoid the obvious. That we, that those who are posterity, no matter if they're hundreds of years afterwards, if they are posterity of those who are bound to a national covenant, they are obliged to keep it, whether even if it was initiated by the nation with God, and even if it's a Gentile nation. A third objection. All the original covenanters must be present at the renewal of a national covenant if any alterations in the least are made to the words or to the outward historical circumstances. Otherwise, it is not a covenant renewal of perpetual obligation on posterity, but rather a brand new covenant that is made for the very first time. Well, this objection proceeds from the false premise that unless all of the original covenanters are present to approve any changes in the least made in the covenant at the time of the covenant renewal, it is not the same covenant with the original covenant and therefore it cannot be renewed but is rather a new covenant from and different distinct from the original covenant. Well, let's consider the word of God Let's not just take somebody's sophistry in trying to excuse themselves from covenanted obligations and duties. Let's see what God says. It's clear that in Deuteronomy 29, there is a renewal in Moab of the national covenant made with God at Mount Sinai. For we see these two covenants mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1. Just uh, very quickly, we read there. These are the words of the covenant, which the Lord commanded Moses to make with children of Israel and the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, or at Sinai. So here we have the covenant made in Moab, very distinctly referred to, and here we find the covenant made in uh, made at Horeb or Mount Sinai as well. So there is a clear distinction between uh, these two uh, these two covenants. <clears throat> and we also see in Deuteronomy twenty nine thirteen that the covenant made in Moab, this covenant renewal, I'll call it is actually of the same substance with that made at Sinai. Notice what it says. Speaking of this this covenant renewal, that he may establish thee, that is God, may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee. As he hath said unto thee. Well, where did he say that? Well, it was in the original covenant. And back in uh, uh, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, as, they, as God was saying, what would be uh, uh, entailed in taking this covenant? Well, you'll be my people, a special people, a people of my own possession, 
and treasure throughout the world. And so uh, that language in Deuteronomy 29.13 goes back to, takes us all the way back to that original covenant made with Israel uh, at at, at Mount Sinai. So this demonstrates that the national covenant in Moab was, in fact, a renovation of the national covenant made at Sinai. Furthermore, the clear repetition of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai as a part of that national covenant and as a part, the same Ten Commandments, as a part of the national covenant renewal at Moab in Deuteronomy 5 indicates again, that the National Covenant of Moab is a covenant renewal of the original National Covenant made at Mount Sinai. But let me note two points which cause us to reject this objection now at this point. Well, first, there is, as we've noted in a previous sermon, there is an alteration of the actual words used in the covenant renewal as found in the fourth commandment as you compare the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, with the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, you see that there actually is an alteration in the words of the covenant that are used there. Uh, Furthermore, as you look to the fifth commandment, as it's found in Deuteronomy 5, 16, and compared to the original covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20:12, again you'll find an alteration in the words of those of the fifth commandment. And finally, as you look at the tenth commandment and you compare the covenant renewal in Deuteronomy 5:21 with the original covenant made in Exodus 20:17, likewise again you will find an alteration in the words used. Now, even though there are changes in the actual words found in the covenant renewal, is it still the same lawful covenant that was being renewed? Is it still the covenant at Mount Sinai, even though there were some changes to the words of the the Ten Commandments, is it still the same covenant that is being renewed? Of course it is. Of course it is. Second, there were many of the original covenanters who were present at Mount Sinai that were not present for the covenant renewal in Moab. For the Lord had destroyed all those 20 years old and above in the wilderness, according to Numbers 14.29. A vast majority of those who were present at the original covenant at Mount Sinai were no longer present. And yet the words were altered and changed. Where were the, all the original covenanters to approve the changes? They weren't there. And yet the renovation of the national covenant of Israel and Moab is a lawful covenant renewal. This objection, dear ones, likewise is groundless. A fourth objection as it relates to covenant renewal is this. If it is a national covenant, it cannot be lawfully renewed without the national representatives of church and state being present. If it is a national covenant, then you must at least have all the national representatives in church and state present to renew that covenant. Otherwise, it's not a lawful covenant renewal. This, This objection states that when an, uh, an incomplete portion of the national representatives are not willing to renew a national covenant, then that willing remnant that is wanting to do so cannot lawfully do so. <coughs> well, dear ones, when God is one party to a national covenant, any violation of that national covenant by even one member of that nation and how much more so by several members of that nation or several thousand members of that nation, how much more so then may those who have violated the covenant, if it is made directly with God, how much more so may they repent of their covenant breaking? Not only may they, ought they to do so, 
May they and ought they to seek God's forgiveness for their covenant breaking. And may they and ought they to own anew the national covenant as to its moral content that yet applies to them wherein, wherein they have violated those moral principles. How much more so, if it's made with God, they ought to take these steps and not simply disregard it. If they simply disregard it, and it's a covenant made with God, and they are the posterity, and they just disregard it, they continue to be covenant breakers. Is there no way for one who is a covenant breaker to become a covenant keeper without the nation and all of its representatives say, we will renew this covenant? How ridiculous that we who have broken it cannot in our... Uh, personally, or in our family, or in our church, renew a covenant, a scattered remnant. <clears throat> a national covenant breaking, dear ones, against a lawful national covenant is one thing. In which case, the entire nation and its official representatives in church and state must repent of covenant breaking, seek God's forgiveness for covenant breaking, and own a new covenant that own a new the covenant that has been broken. However, as I said, personal covenant breaking, familial covenant breaking, ecclesiastical covenant breaking, on our parts. The covenant breaking of a scattered remnant, it is not only appropriate, but right and just for those parties who recognize that they have been unfaithful and they've broken covenant to confess their sin to God and to renew that covenant. Because there is a personal responsibility that we cannot simply pass off on to the civil magistrates. We cannot blame the civil magistrates for our covenant breaking, we are responsible for our own covenant breaking. As it says in Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4, again, simply summarizing, they sought to escape their responsibility and duty to God, uh, uh, Israel did, by claiming that the, uh, that the children's teeth were made sharp by the parents eating sour grapes. <laughs> and they're basically saying, our, our teeth feel the way they do because our parents are responsible for eating sour grapes. And so they were blaming their parents and not accepting responsibility. But God says, God says in Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4, the man that sinneth, he shall surely die. Take responsibility for your own covenant breaking. That's a biblical principle. Yes, if ever we are to renew this as a national covenant, granted, as a national covenant, we need the national representatives present. But if we are renewing this covenant for ourselves, as individuals, as families, as a church, as a scattered remnant, all we need are those to recognize that it is our duty, it is our responsibility to renew a covenant by which we are bound as posterity. In conclusion, dear ones, how often do you think to renew solemn covenants, whether personal covenants with God, whether marital covenants, whether ecclesiastical covenants, whether the solemn league and covenant, whether the covenant of grace as you worship each Lord's Day or witness a baptism, how often do you think that this is an opportunity for me to renew covenant with God? Even if it's informally done, within your own heart. Not every form of covenant renewal has to be formally done with all the pomp and circumstance. It can be done uh, personally, inwardly. It can be happen within a family or a church in a more informal uh, fashion. Uh, 
again, the more it becomes, the more people that become involved, particularly as a church or as a scattered remnant, I believe the more formal aspects of it are important to include uh, by way of covenant renewal, following faithful covenant renewals from the past in the scriptures and, and, and by way of our faithful forefathers who preceded us. But again, we renew covenant with God in having broken covenants by which we're bound and can do so in our own hearts before God in our, in our worship on the Lord's Day as we would in a, ba- a baptism. All of these opportunities are, are, are presented to us. They're covenant ceremonies. Opportunities when we come together to renew covenant with God. To renew covenant with one another. It doesn't simply require the Lord's Supper to be observed. We do renew covenant the Lord's Supper as well. But it happens whenever we come together as God's people. But it can also happen in the context of a family. Or your own time of secret worship. Covenant renewal, dear ones, ought not to be a foreign concept to we who are sinners and saved by the wondrous grace of God who stand continually in need of God's gracious forgiveness. Covenant renewal ought not to be strange and foreign unto us. It ought to be a regular duty we embark upon even when it's done, as I said, informally. For the thankful and loving expression of all those who have been saved through the covenant of grace in Christ becoming our covenant keeper is one of regular covenant renewal to be God's people and for God to be our own God in all of his glorious power and mercy and righteousness and wisdom and love. A people who do not renew covenant with God are a thankless and proud people who live in continual covenant breaking with God. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, holy art Thou, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of Thy glory. And we bow before Thee, for Father, we do not deserve to be Thy people, and Thou, we do not deserve to have Thee as our God. And we confess, Lord, that we have broken covenant with Thee and with one another in various ways, and we pray, God, that we would be those who are given to covenant renewal in our lives with Thee, that it would not be something that is foreign and strange to us, but out of the thankfulness of our heart, we stand in awe and wonder at our covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has imputed unto us his righteousness by faith alone. We, Lord, can only, in our weak and feeble way, repent of our covenant breaking, seek thy forgiveness for our covenant breaking, and renew our covenant with thee and with one another. O oh Lord, we, we pray that Thou would cause uh, this sermon on covenant renewal to be such a great encouragement to us. That Thou has given to us not only the ordinance of covenanting, but also the ordinance of covenant renewal. And we pray, Lord, that Thou would cause us to be faithful uh, in this Thine ordinance. Uh, We ask, Lord, that Thou would hear us. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com.
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.